Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, folks, 19-year-old... World number 54, Iga Sviantec, has won her first ever career title and she's done it at Roland Garros and become a Grand Slam champion. Uh, how about that? 6-4, 6-1 over Australian Open champion Sophia Kennan, a thoroughly worthy victor today. A demolition job, frankly, throughout the whole tournament. I mean, she's just left tennis in her wake seemingly. Uh, tr- truly extraordinary. 19-year-old Igor Sviantec, a star is born. Any more, anyone want any more cliches? I've got, I've got more. I, I found myself saying <laughs> the stuff that dreams are made of today. <laughs> it's <laughs> so know, hard a, to avoid them in these Yeah, in a weak moment, what can I say? But I mean, the, the tennis she played was the stuff of, of comments like that because you, you just... You need something reassuring that you can fall back on that that can properly sum up as unsatisfactory as it may be um, it can sum up what you're seeing and and you really mean it when you're say when you're saying that the, the number of times that I've watched her play over the last two weeks and I thought this can't be real this or or this is going to end this is going to come to a grinding halt hence why i didn't even pick her to win the final you know why change a habit of a lifetime um i th- i thought that sophia kenin if anybody could make it sufficiently difficult for her to come off the rails she could do it and she made it more competitive than anybody in the first 40 minutes it was a brilliant first 40 minutes as a contest but that's that's testament to Kennan's fighting spirit because level-wise, nobody got even close to Sviantec. In any other match I saw at all, not just the ones that she played, she played some of the best tennis that I think I've ever seen at a Grand Slam, pound for pound. If you just look at it in terms of 
you don't like to compare. I don't want to compare ears and all this sort of stuff. But the, the tennis she produced was as good as you can get. Yeah, I was watching a little bit open mouth by the end. I mean, the fact that we've seen her do this all tournament, and yet it still surprised me and impressed me that she was able to do this in a final. We've seen young players in the women's game perform very, very well in Grand Slam finals over the last few years, and very much a trend in the women's game at the moment is these young players winning the slams. And yet there was just something telling me today that Sviontek might not be able to keep this going. And I, I feel a fool for doubting her because she kept it going and then some. I think by the end she was playing certainly as well as she's played all tournament, which is probably as well as she's ever played in her entire career. Um, just to put some meat on the bone in terms of those numbers of what she's achieved this week, 28 games lost to win the tournament. She won a 6-1 set against every opponent bar one. Eugenie Bouchard was the only player she played who didn't lose a 6-1 set against her. And, well played, gee. <laughs> and nobody won more than five games against her. Just a complete demolition yeah, job. Kenin equaled the achievement of Sue Shea. By today. winning four in a set. Yes, and, and five Bu overall. And Bouchard also got five overall. I mean, just complete dominance from the very first match where she beat last year's finalist to the final match where she beat a reigning Grand Slam champion. Just an extraordinary run and also just done with such style and such an interesting game that she's got. I think it was kind of, it was kind of just the whole package we saw. And it wasn't quite as simple as her just rocking up today and playing exactly the same tennis, seemingly impervious to the occasion and the pressure as we've seen her play in the previous six matches because there were little wobbles today. There were there were odd little patches where her forehand, her incredible fearsome forehand was starting to let her down. But then the backhand stepped up. I actually was most impressed by her backhand today, that little scooped backhand down the line that she she manages to to dig out from really low down. Um, it was just a marvel today. I mean, she's just got everything, hasn't she? And I know uh, I know some people will point to, I mean, Sophia Kennan has pointed to her being somewhat hampered physically. Um, and that is a great shame if that is the case. But I, at the point that that medical timeout was taken, 2-1, in the second set, Kenin, Kenin had broken at the start of the second set. She had just been broken back, so it was on serve 2-1. Kenin goes off court for, for a three-minute medical timeout and returns to the court with more strapping on that thigh hamstring area than, than the standard strapping that she's had throughout the tournament. But up until that point, I hadn't seen any particular evidence of her being hampered. Certainly that wasn't the story of the match for me, um, and, and I hope it's not looked back on like that at all. No, I, I didn't think so, um, to, to be quite honest. And, and in the first set, let's not forget, she raced off into a three-love lead, Sviantec, in eight minutes. And, and uh, I mean, again, you just you just can't believe what you're seeing. But Kenin stuck to her guns, and she kept on pushing her and fighting and scrapping and making it making it awkward, you know, sometimes getting balls back that, how on earth she got that back, you know? And you could see Sviantec thinking, well, oh, nobody else has got that back. Um, <laughs> and, and there was, but, and she, and it quickly came back to three all. 
Naomi Brody, who was with us in the commentary box on BBC Radio, commented on some slightly awkward footwork for Sviantek, where she kept sort of slightly misreading the bounce of the ball, the spin that um, Kenin was putting on it on drop shots, and she'd find herself having planted her feet and then lurching forward to try to manipulate the ball. So she wasn't, she was getting wrong footed a little bit. She was not able to impose herself in that first set in quite the same way as she had in, in other matches. But when that medical timeout was called, Sviantek had pretty much got her then. I, I, I think that, that had that timeout not been called, the match was going the same way, more or less, because she, she was, she's one of those downhill players. When she's on the downhill, <laughs> try and catch her. You know, she's an incredible front runner. But, the, but she, she got better after the medical timeout. I mean, there is, a, there is that question mark always in the back of the head. Has Kenin, as a, a player that's being defeated, She's got some pain. Is she going to try to disrupt a bit of momentum here by taking a medical timeout? She went off the court. We had this comical scene of Sviantek going to try to practice her own serve or her own return, getting the wrong balls because you're not allowed to use the match balls for it. And she, But I loved the look on Sviantek's face. She was laughing about it. She was kind of orchestrating the crowd and clapping this, the Polish fans in the crowd because they were enjoying it. And, she, you know, you're thinking... How come you're not stressed out? This is a Grand Slam final. Um, but at the moment that Kenan came back, Sviantek went into overdrive. I mean, she was she barely lost a point of about the next 16, did she, Matt? Well, she won 19 of the last 22 points after the medical timeout. And I was thinking all through that period of, it was about seven minutes, I think, was the overall stoppage. Once, once she'd had the assessment, gone off court, come back on, it was... And I just thought this is this is a pivotal moment because Sviontek's being made to think about the lead she's got. And I feel like I've seen lots of players in that situation falter after that. And she said afterwards, I think on Eurosport, that she really used the moment to kind of enjoy herself and ground herself and actually got more relaxed during that moment. I thought that would be a stressful situation, but she used it to relax and it really showed in her tennis afterwards. As you said, she just got better and better, stronger and stronger. Personally, I thought after the medical timeout, I did see Kenin looking hampered. I don't think she was moving as well after it. I don't know whether the the strapping was was kind of too much or too tight or something. Sviantek just took advantage of that. But I think the period of the match which most impressed me was the end of the first set because I thought Sviantek might be able to outplay Kenin, but I thought Kenin would outcompete Sviantek. And that was really the only period of the match where it was close, that end of the first set where they were both playing quite well. And yet it was Sviantek who displayed even greater tenacity and even greater desire and ambition in those tight moments and that's not to say that Kenin didn't display those qualities, but Sviantek matched her. And then she had the game and the confidence to go with it. And it was just this combination that made her kind of an unstoppable force, I thought. It's a slightly different type of competitive instinct, isn't it? Or maybe a slightly differently expressed competitive instinct. For me, I saw it most starkly after that medical timeout in how ruthless Sviantek was. She drop-shotted more. She made her run. I mean, we... We've seen countless examples. We saw one a couple of days ago with Djokovic and Pablo Carreño Busta, how difficult it is 
to to play against an opponent that you know is injured, both mentally and kind of technically, it scrambles your mind. Well, it just clarified everything in Svantec's mind, and she went in for the kill of a wounded beast. This 19-year-old, unassuming, unseeded girl. And it was it was quite incredible to watch. And she finished it with a forehand, didn't she? Mm. It was just the perfect finish again. Everything about it. It was one of the cleanest Grand Slam victories over a two-week period imaginable. Um, I just... I, I still find myself feeling quite in shock about it because no, you know, when we came into the U.S. Open and Bianca Andreescu won, by that time we'd seen enough to to feel that this is absolutely a possibility. I can't. I, I mean, I suppose Ostapenko maybe might be a similarly shocking result out of nowhere. Be very interesting to see whether Svantec has any of the issues that Ostapenko had in in backing it up. Um. But just, I feel really, it's, it was a joyous victory for, for the sport. It adds another player to this this fantastic group who you would expect would be battling, battling it out for years. How much do you think Daria Abramovich's uh, rates have gone up by in the last three hours? She is, of course, the uh, sports psychologist that uh, Svantec, uh employees has on retainer she travels with Shontek she certainly was was at the French Open with her she was there in her box it's her birthday today it's also World Mental Health Day I mean how could you folks not have predicted that this would happen happen I mean it was all there the yeah, writing I, I, was on the wall you've put you've already put in the call haven't you Catherine uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, I mean why are out. we not all employing sports psychologists yeah um, I want well, her to just come and sort out my life <laughs> i i feel like it's one of the more interesting developments that we've had in tennis for a while because you know every so often the game changes somebody does something different somebody finds a shot that nobody else has got or a, a training method that nobody else has tried before and this is another another development we we've there have been sports psychologists in the sport for many, many years, but to actually hire somebody and travel with her and to do it off your own back when you're 19, just think about that. That's that's not just a grown-up decision. That's the sort of decision you make after you've made all sorts of mistakes in your life, not something that you've suddenly thought, you know what, I think that this would be a really good idea. And, and I think it's just, well... I mean, the proof is there, you know, it's inspired. It's the kind of thing people usually undo to to erase or un, undo or unburden themselves of already accumulated men, mental baggage, not something people do preventatively to kind of stop that baggage accumulating. I mean, when you're... When you're 19, you usually feel like you're bulletproof, right? I'll never have any baggage. You know, you're sit to pass going into the lion's den against Djokovic thinking, well, obviously I'm going to win this. You're like, what's baggage? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it just, it's so, it's such a mature thing to do to make that investment. It, it, it boggles my mind. And I think she's been traveling with her for a quite a while now this isn't a particularly new thing i think she might even have been working her with her since she was 17 or 18 
just ahead of the field, ahead of the game in in that regard. And it's something other players have been doing, I'd say, on a slightly smaller scale in terms of focusing on the on the mental side of the game. Bianca Andrescu talked very openly about that as well last year, didn't she, about visualisation and that being such an important part of what she does. But I thought in her press conference, Igor Sviontek gave quite a nice summary line of what her approach is when she's playing and, and, and the message from her psychologist is to is to say that winning is the effect of what I'm doing rather than the goal. You know, the the goal isn't winning. The goal is kind of shot by shot, match by match, performance by performance. And, and, she's, and she really plays down her own expectations. And I think her expectations this tournament were not to win the event. It sounds to me like she'd really highlighted that Hallett match. I mean, she called that her lifetime achievement, beating Simona Hallett. And I think once she overcame that hurdle that was such proof of progress because she'd played Halep last year and got thrashed and this year she thrashed Halep and I think it liberated her and freed her and just made her sort of focus even more on the micro level and somehow she managed to not start thinking oh I'm 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 the favorite for the tournament even though everyone was saying that she was she was grounded and realized that she'd already achieved something massive so you know winning the title maybe wasn't that much more of a step that she needed to make. David, do you remember on our day one French Open tennis podcast? I know it was a lot of whiskeys ago, but uh, I th- it was the day we'd watched all of those Brits lose. We'd, we'd watch, in particular, we'd watched Joe Conter lose, and I think you'd commentated on that. And uh, y- you, you came on sort of already feeling downtrodden about your predictions, and you said, I think I have underestimated the importance of form coming into this this French Open. Well, Iga Sviontek lost in the first round of Rome to Arantxa Rus. That was her one. That was her one match on clay before the French Open. She lost to Arantxa Rus seven six six three. Okay, she had reached the third round of uh, the U.S. Open. She'd beaten Kudamatova and Sasha Vickery before losing to Victoria Azarenka. She didn't even play singles at the Westerners Southern Open because her ranking, I think, wasn't high enough to get her in. She only played doubles. Mm, and and Kennan had lost six love, six love in Rome. So what we're saying is I was right all along <laughs> before um, I corrected myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you were picking Schwantek for the title about five days ago and then you... Overruled that. It, then you... you uh, yeah, I don't know what, I'm a, I'm I don't know what came over you. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> um, you're, like, actually, you're like Matt with uh, going to a don't tournament. Don't drag me into this. Well, you very much are with David in this predictions <laughs> we both wise. Went with the same thing. Oh dear. Um, I'm not going to give you too hard a time about the fact that I got it right and you didn't because I believe your mum has already given you a hard time about yeah, it. Yeah, she has. Which uh, is my favourite thing to ever. See how things are going, and she says, "Oh, Catherine got that right, didn't she about Shriontek?" <laughs> mm. yeah. I had a text from my mum saying, "Oh, 24 points, Mama." <laughs> <laughs> Um, by the way, uh, just just building on what Matt was saying about the press conference with uh, Sviontek, um, the WTA Insider account is quoting an NBC conversation between John McEnroe and Mary Carrillo with Sviontek where um, she talks about how she came out of the COVID break thinking, oh, this might be a real opportunity, you know, to the, the, there are lots of players that aren't here and, you know, maybe, maybe I can win a, win a grand slam. 
and then she says um she she then found that that didn't work out too well um and that was when she realized that the best way to approach them would be to not have her expectations too high and and just focus on the tennis and and it, because she didn't do as, do as well in the US Open I mean I think she did okay but you know it was it it really is I mean when players say one point at a time we just get we we eye roll don't we at times because it's boring right but they've got to do it that way um and that's just I think it's a lovely way of just showing the journey that you might ha- might go from grand ambitions to bringing it back down into the, the granular detail in she, order to get to where you want to go. She kind of seems to have a way of saying all of that boring stuff, though, without it sounding boring. She's so unfiltered oh, she's lovely, and natural and human that it somehow isn't boring coming from her because she's so not ro- – sometimes it sounds robotic and she is so far from robotic that you, my, you, you can take that process stuff from someone like her i mean her her two speeches on court today one in conversation with marion bartley and one um uh, after she'd received the trophy were both just an absolute joy uh, and i hadn't i hadn't realized that she and naomi osaka are good friends before today and osaka tweeted about how anxious she was she'd about She'd never really watched a Grand Slam final before, wanting somebody so desperately to to win, and she said she had sweaty palms. And I am I'm so here for that friendship. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great, and there are such similarities between them. It's yeah, it's marvelous. Yeah, I mean, her speech was kind of identical to the one Asaka gave when she won Indian Wells for the first time, saying, "I'm I'm not very good at speeches. I don't really know what to say." <laughs> and then I think she'd given you know about three lines and then said do I need to say something else and it was just it was it was all just <laughs> it was all just so perfect because of course that's exactly what we want to hear that that is that is being great at speeches being authentic being natural and uh, she's got all the same kind of mannerisms as Naomi Osaka when she answers a question as well she she gives that um that Osaka does and for me and you know she says the same kind of things as Osaka and yeah, I mean it's it's the year of the introvert, isn't it? Post lockdown, anyway. In we're in waited thirty three years for that. Yeah, <laughs> still time, Catherine. Um, no, it's here. Apparently, yeah. it's here. Well, yeah, you, you, your time is now. Uh, my my mum goes. It's it's a shame that nobody told her what to do, isn't it? At the end of the match, of what you where you go, and <laughs> but I said to her, that's the appealing bit, really. You yeah. know, her getting lost on the way up to the see her family or her coach and not really knowing how you do it i i felt like um given it was i don't i mean i'm i'm definitely down the super cautious uh strict end of things with regards to restrictions but given she was nowhere near anyone and it was open air i felt like she could have had the chance to remove her mask for the for the trophy moment for the photos with the trophy in fact what ended up happening is she had to wear the mask for the photos but then she removed the mask to kiss the trophy which felt like kind of the most (laughs) high risk thing you could possibly do with a trophy well well, there's two things i would say is what one is i suppose it's not a bad message to be sending out around the world as as a visual yes and of course now we get to say it's iconic Hang on, a Brummie doing 
an impersonation yeah, you, of a Brummy doesn't work. You changed yeah. your accent there, David. Yeah, but yeah. I've lost mine. Mine, my, I, I've, you know, it's a sad story, but I don't have mine in quite the same way as I used to. But I can still do it any time I want. It's more about intonation, isn't it, than accent? It's iconic. When I'm when I'm back there, it's a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, you will be soon, David. You will be seen. Um, just, I don't want. I don't want to end up finishing on the medical timeout. But since you mentioned um, uh, the NBC coverage, David, uh, we've heard some reports uh, of um, what the the tone of their commentary when Sophia Kennan did take that medical timeout in the in the second set. We understand Mary said this Kennan medical timeout feels a little sketchy. I got to tell you, David, you were in commentary as well at the time on five live how what was your instinctive feeling about it how did you cover it tonally yeah i I think we uh, initially we took it on face value as just she's she's got she had a bit of strapping already i think and then she went and got more and but then when i thought about it when she came back and it was also quite a long delay and all that sort of thing and my first reaction straight after it was she looks all right to me now, I, I completely take on board what Matt has said about her movement. I, I wasn't watching her movement really closely, to be honest with you, but in the point that followed immediately after the medical timeout, I did not think she's got a major problem here. Um, and I did think, in hindsight, that that absolutely could have been a way to just try to change the momentum a little bit and stop this runaway train that Sviantec is capable of being and would go on to be. So I I do think I do think it's perfectly possible that that was that that she was both feeling it a bit but also she didn't actually have to take that time out. Mm. She is she she does uh take bathroom breaks doesn't she after she loses a set typically. There are plenty of players that do that. She took one today. Sviantec went off as well, I mean, I, 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 I am not somebody that gets het up about bathroom breaks. I think people are, tend to be a bit myopic about that. Generally, I, I'm, it's not because I don't think tactical bathroom breaks happen. I just think there's no way of legislating for for when they're tactical and when they're not. So you've just got to you've just got to take that hit that there will be some tactical bathroom breaks. But that is a thing that she typically does. So she's obviously aware of that tactic as a as a means of as a means of you know disrupting momentum and it works for her she's got a fantastic three-set record and she's yeah she's exactly she's a street fighter it's what we love about her more or less do anything and i don't Mm. mean necessarily try to break rules but certainly use what you're allowed to do and try to to win um Mm. and so turns out it doesn't work on uh igosh viontek though I, I'm not sure what it would have taken to disrupt her today. I mean, a streaker? No, nothing would have worked. She's too good. She's too good. Absolutely. And I I know a lot of people that are having the, will she be able to back it up? Will she be a flash in the pan discussion? I mean, it's just a flat yes and no. I'd be amazed but if she did. for me, didn't. like that Put end of discussion. Right. I, 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 look, I would say at the end of every 
post Grand Slam final podcast that we do, I think it's I think we we are inevitably pretty high on what we've seen and and the chances of the players just want to slam that that does happen. I I will have made grand statements about all sorts of players who may not have done quite what I thought at the time, but the, the, there's just so much there, and she's so young. I mean. What I, the, the caution you, I always have to bear in mind is look what's happened to Bianca Andreescu who just mm. can't even get on the court, you know? But, got, I mean, ev- every prediction like that comes with fitness caveats, though. But, but I really don't see that there's, there's not a... I can't see her game going dramatically off. I think there's so much to work with. She seems to enjoy what she's doing. Um, she's already got the mind element sorted, or at least she's got an understanding of that. There's such self-awareness there. I would just rather look at it as a real really optimistically of just imagine if she and Andrescu and Osaka and Ash Barty and Coco Goff and all of these young players are battling it out for the next 10 years just imagine and whoever else comes along the Sviantec adds to that group enormously yeah, that's that's my wish really for the next tennis season that all, all those players are healthy and can be competitive at the deep end of slams because there's such an exciting pool of players who who've all proved that they can win and just to get them all all together at the same time is is kind of the next phase I suppose of this of this breakout that we've had of of young players. Um I think it's it's worth saying that it's it's a very different time to be breaking through. I mean, we don't know what the world or the tennis calendar is going to look like over the next year. I mean, hopefully it's it can be reasonably normal and she will have opportunities to keep playing and she's not going to, well, she might play in Ostrava, but other than that, she won't be playing again this year, we know. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, time will tell. It gives us some time to maybe reflect and take it all in. This is a going to be a massive deal in in Poland, a big country, a sports loving country. That she's the first Grand Slam singles champion from her country. That's that's going to be a lot to take in, and you know, it's it's possible that she will go to Australia, and their plans are certainly to have fans in the in the ground from from Australia and that's going to be a very different Grand Slam experience for her as as a Grand Slam champion for the first time. So I think short term we should always have some caution probably over these players, but long term I absolutely think Igor Sviontek is here to stay. And you know, I was already kind of thinking of that Doug Spreen quote about uh, when Rafa Nadal won the French Open for the first time, you know, <laughs> how many can Igor Sviontek win with that game? You know, I was I was getting carried away and kind of ahead of myself but for me she's got a game that can go from strength to strength she can build on it and it feels like it can probably suit hard and clay courts and she's also won junior Wimbledon so maybe it suits grass as well yeah I think I think her long-term prospects are very very bright in this sport Mm. we're on board the train that's for sure 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking. And I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So there is just one more singles match remaining in this 2020 French Open. We are going to look ahead to that a little bit um, in a short while. But first, David's been having a chat with, um, I'm going to say sportscaster, because that's what they say in America, sportscaster. There's um, a uh, a friend of mine uh, who worked on the on Amazon uh, uh, for the last couple of years at the US Open, she calls me sportscaster Barbie, which I'm I'm really up for. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that's what Americans American broadcasters in sport call themselves. Uh, Ted Robinson, sorry, I meandered into the intro of Ted Robinson. There, David's been chatting to uh, Ted Robinson, who's a a you, you might not have heard of him in the UK, but I'm sure if you're in in the US, then you certainly will have. He's a he's a sportscaster of um, some note, working on tennis for for many many years and other sports as well. He's covered the US Open and the French Open on site now, which is a fantastically unique perspective, and that's what David asked him about. 
first to compare and contrast the experiences of those two slams? Well, David, yeah, there's several commentators. Uh, Mark Woodford, the great doubles player, uh, is also here in Paris doing world feed commentary. So there have been several commentators, but not many that were on site for both. Uh, I will tell you both have been extraordinarily positive. And I was no different, I think, than most human beings when I went from my home in California to New York for the U.S. Open. I had some uncertainty. I didn't know what I was going into. I was totally, I was going from one U.S. hotspot to another U.S. hotspot. I was going to be tested immediately. Uh, and David, in, in the USTA, the United States Tennis Association, blew me away with how well they handled virtually everything at the U.S. Open. Now, I did not get to see the hotels that the two the, the two hotels that the players used, but I grew up in that area. I grew up very close to the hotel, um, one of the hotels that was used. So I know them, I know the area, and I understood what they did to make those hotels as palatable as they could for the players. I didn't see it firsthand. I saw the National Tennis Center firsthand. It was it was a theme park. It was incredible what, what they did for the players in what was a totally closed environment. Uh, by the end of the U.S. Open, I was hearing it from tennis people. Suddenly, the, the dialogue had switched, David, from We're, we don't even want to go to New York to, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen in Paris? Because they don't have a bubble. <laughs> and as now we speak near the end of Roland Garros, that's played out. And Paris is totally different than New York. New York was still a fairly closed environment while we were there. I lived in a somewhat bubble environment in my own hotel. And I have many family and friends in New York that I did not see while I was there because it was going to violate the protocols. Paris is an open city, David. Paris is open. Everything. I went to church here for the first time in six months. I was in a church. Uh, restaurants are open. Schools are open. The Louvre is open. So I think we need to frame the tennis environment in the cities in which it's been held. Paris is an open city. The mask wearing is obligatory. They're fining people if they don't. But I've also, I've eaten probably at 10 dinners at restaurants, every one of them outdoors, but there's indoor dining here. And that doesn't happen. When I go home, David, to California, there will be no indoor dining where I live. Uh, still seven months into this pandemic. So I, I believe that the, the overall perspective has to be framed by the locales. But I will tell you this, the French Federation has done as, I think, as fine a job as it could do with very minimal disruption to, again, put on a major championship. Mm. Do, do you feel that they could have run a bubble system there? Or, or is or is the the environment not suitable for it, given what you've described? Yeah, yeah David, I think that's a fair question, David. I, I've wondered that here. I, I, my sense is I don't know how they could do it here. Just the, the nature, and certainly you've been here. Anyone who's been to Roland Garros understands it's in the middle. Well, not physically in the middle, but it's basically in central Paris. Um, the hotels are in the city. The hotels here are not like the hotels that the that the USTA used in New York for their bubble environment that were in suburban areas 
And one of them was basically a resort hotel. I grew up within 10 minutes of one of the hotels. And as a young kid growing up there, we were never allowed on the grounds. It was way too nice. They didn't let people like us come there. Uh, th those That doesn't exist here in Paris. So might they have been able to take one hotel and completely buy it out, in essence, and use that as the bubble? Perhaps. I, I'm not totally up to speed on that. But the environment here is not as conducive to it. And I will also say this, David, the grounds. I was a little bit taken on Garros. There's still a lot of construction going on in the grounds. There are courts that have been taken away that are still in the middle of construction. It's, in essence, a lot of concrete right now. It doesn't have the, the, the Parisian feel that Roland Garros has had in the past. Chatrier is beautiful. The redone Chatrier, they did a marvelous job with that. Uh, but the rest of the grounds would not be suitable to what the USTA did in New York. I don't know that there's any way the French could have done, as I said, really what New York did, which was a theme park. And the other reality is the weather in New York was 20 to 30 degrees nicer per day than what, what we've had here in Paris. How has it felt having fans there versus New York? That, David's been a big improvement. And I, I called the Nadal match today, the Nadal-Schwartzman match, and I referenced it. Uh, I was with Jim Courier in our tennis channel commentary to the U.S., and I referenced it several times. It was noticeable, whether it's 1,000 or maybe 1,500 people when you count other credentialed staff and journalists that could be in there. Just having that noise was meg was just a major difference. And that was the one thing the U.S. Open just could not do, the the, the politics and the the government controls in New York did not allow that. Um, I know because, again, I went, in fact, during the women's semifinals, David, I sat in probably the third row behind the, the baseline to watch the Naomi Osaka-Jennifer Brady match. And then I called the Serena Azarenka match actually with Mary Carrillo. It was the best night of tennis the best women's night of tennis I have ever seen at the U.S. Open. I've probably, think, done 27 or 28. It was brilliant tennis. They played magnificently, despite the fact there were perhaps 200 people in the stands. So, yes, one side of that would say it's a shame. The other side is I admire the four players because they played in just a brilliant level of tennis. Uh, it's been better in Paris, without question, having those Spectators have there to add some juice to have. Uh, I, I called. We were in Los Angeles doing it remotely. David, uh, we called the Schwartzman Nadal match uh, from Los Angeles for Tennis Channel in Rome, and Rome that night had allowed a thousand spectators in, and it was magnificent because Schwartzman was saluted for what is we understand a major achievement in tennis for anybody to beat Rafa on clay, whether it's best of three or best of five is massive. And it was terrific to have a thousand people in there. Uh, Bear C is going to be ha uh, uh, conducted as we've just learned in a couple of weeks here indoors with a thousand fans. And it's funny, David, because uh, what we learned at the U S open and it, it was pay uh, literally they paid a price. The coaches got fined because you found out that when there's nobody there, you hear everything. <laughs> and coaches and coaches in, in New York had to learn the hard way when they were coaching their players from the stands, they were caught. And it's happened here, even with a thousand people or at max a thousand people. Uh, Sophia Kennan's dad's been fined three times for coaching. And 
and it's going to, I think, you know, I, oh, I hope it's not a factor in the final that they play as we're talking, but in this world going forward where we're going to be holding tennis events with limited spectators at best, you hear everything. Uh, David, I couldn't tell you how many times at the U.S. Open somebody would walk on the concourse 60 rows above the court at Ash and the server would pause because they could tell. Oh, wow. <laughs> In a normal U.S. Open, you would never know. But in an empty Ash Stadium, the servers saw that person out of the very corner of their eye, their peripheral vision caught that fan, and they would pause and stop. So these are all things that we had no way to know until we've lived it firsthand. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I've, I've walked out into that concourse occasionally, where sometimes to go and interview somebody at a player box or something like that when the place is full. And I've sometimes thought – Oh, uh, maybe I should wait until you know the change of ends or something before I go walk anywhere. And you realize everybody's walking everywhere because nobody picks out anything, do they? Do when it when it's you know normal circumstances. But yeah, totally, totally different. No, as you know, David, New York is that way forever. At the U.S. Open, there's there's constant, there's never quiet at the U.S. Open. Perhaps in a final, in the most in the most intense moments, but basically, there's never quiet. And this U.S. Open was stunning because there was nothing but quiet. And I, I can tell you as a credentialed person there, we were encouraged in the second week of the U.S. Open that if we weren't working, we were encouraged to go sit in the stands, to go into Ash and sit down by the court because the players wanted it. The players asked the USTA to give us some atmosphere. Um, and it's been a little bit jarring to me here that the French Federation, and we saw it most prominently with Danielle Collins' boyfriend and that whole absurd scenario where she kicks him out of the out of her her box, but the coach then or the fitness guy actually boyfriend relocates into a box that technically is a corporate box, and the and the Roland Garros ushers kicked him out of there. <laughs> and I mean, it's absurd. There's only a thousand people in the stadium. Let the guy sit there. But they have their own way of doing things here, and that was their that was their protocol. Wow! Uh, but at the U.S. Open, David, I can tell you, we were literally encouraged to go, which is why I did it for the Brady Osaka semi. I sat about two sections over from Jen Brady's coaching box in the third row, and I have never in my life sat in Ash Stadium that close to the court. But we were told the players really wanted that; they wanted some people to give them some sense of atmosphere. Mm. And that, I mean, that was one of the matches of the year. I, I remember that vividly, as you say, one of the one of the great nights of of tennis. Um, you 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 obviously are commentating on on all of these matches. We, we've we've had Mary on the podcast a number of times and spoken to her about the the situation that we're in with the pandemic, without fans. And her view was she doesn't want fake crowd noise. She wants to hear the reality. She wants to know everything that goes on now i as a radio commentator i i really was joyous tonight about the fact that there was an atmosphere for sitsipas against djokovic and, and nadal against um schwartzman because on the radio we use the crowd we 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 use it as an exclamation point um i just wonder how how you feel about it as a, as a tv commentator with so much experience obviously this is strange but how do you feel about it well, David, I couldn't agree more, and I, I admire you because I am a, I am of a generation in America where I was trained. My entire background is in radio, 
So I understand completely your point. You live with the ambience, with the, with the atmosphere. You need it. Uh, on television where we are told, I was told 34 years ago, David, the first tennis assignment I ever gave, was given, which was with Mary Carrillo. She, despite that fact, her career has flourished. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was advised by someone who was an agent, a tennis agent at the time, being someone who was who had been, uh, I had come up in the American ball sports, baseball, basketball, football, and wasn't really a tennis person. And I was told that as an announcer, remember that in tennis you can never go wrong saying nothing. And it's the most in- brilliant, intelligent, wise piece of advice I've ever received. And I remember it as you can tell, thirty-four years later. And I certainly violate that rule every so often. I'm not perfect, but I try to remember it. And that's why the crowd noise means more, is for what you said. And today, for example, when Nadal uh, finished off Schwartzman and to Diego said he played a magnificent third set, he didn't buckle, as so many others do when they get down two sets to Rafa, you're, you're hopeless. And Schwartzman pushed back, and he, and he stayed there, and he clawed. He eventually loses and the 1,000 or 1,200 folks in Chatrier sounded more like 10,000 or 12,000. That was wonderful. And we, we laid out on our telecast, Jim Courier and myself, and let that sound waft through television as best we could. And it was magnificent. So, yes, I, I, I commend that whatever the protocols and the government regulations are here in Paris, they allowed that number of fans to come in as they will as they declared for Bercy the uh, ATP event that will happen in three weeks time uh, we missed that in New York it was absolutely the only downside to me of the US Open everything else the USDA did was magnificent there was the French uh, players problem which I understand mo- many of your listeners won't get that because that's an American government issue our American government system uh, is different counties have different regulations. And that's, unfortunately, the USTA picked uh, uh, two bubble hotels that were in a different county, the county I grew up in, and it had nothing to do with New York City. So the New York City regulations didn't apply to that, those hotels. And that was a problem that you might say the USTA may have been able to foresee. But I'm of the mindset, David, that during this COVID, I, I think – since all of this is unprecedented, I won't uh, be very quick to criticize on that front. It was unfair for the players involved. There was, there's no apology anybody can give that's going to make them feel better. But that was about the only blemish I felt being at the U.S. Open. Mm. What are you hearing from the people you speak to about the men's final that we have to come? I mean, you you will have covered a lot of Nadal and Djokovic. I, I imagine a fair bit of them over this fortnight. How how do you feel about it, and, and what are you hearing? Yeah, I, I, we all came here understanding, as everybody does, that Novak is the only player that could really threaten, unless Rafa had some unforeseen physical shortcoming. Novak was the only player that could push him here, uh, and that certainly has borne out. Uh, we, you know, whatever Novak went through in the Carreño Busta corner, those are things that most of us who commentate, you, you know, have a hard time figuring that out. I was a huge proponent of what Sitsipas did, David. I felt I called uh, the Sitsipas Munar first round match here, 
And I, at the end of the match, I said, he just ripped off his scar tissue because, you know, you knew it. We knew it. I had called the Sitsipas Vavrinka match at Roland Garros last year, which was one of the two or three best matches. I think we all agree there were three matches on the men's side in 2019 that stood out. And that was the Wimbledon final, the U.S. Open final, and then the Sitsipas Vavrinka uh, round of 16 at Roland Garros, which was just extraordinary. And it sent Sitsipas into a spiral, which he admitted. He didn't really play well the rest of 2019 as a result. Then you pile on the Chorich match at the U.S. Open this year, and you're thinking, he is in a bad place for someone as young and as talented as he is. Well, he comes back from two sets down to Menar in the first round here, and they rip the scar tissue, and he has played as freely as I've ever seen him play since. And tonight, he battles back you know, magnificently, pushes Novak to a fifth. So you walk away, you say, okay, Novak did what he was supposed to do. It took him an hour and a half longer to do it. But Tsitsipas comes away in a much, much better place than he's been. So now we get to Sunday's final. First of all, what's the weather going to be like? Is the roof going to be closed? Um, Novak, or excuse me, Rafa today, this Friday day in Paris, was as nice a day as we've had here. And so that was to Rafa's benefit. He still is not getting the kick off the clay that he would get in May and June. That isn't going to happen. But it was a better day for Rafa today as opposed to the day, for example, that Schwartzman uh, played him two years ago in the quarterfinals here, which a match I called, and Schwartzman had him scrambling. Schwartzman was up a set and a break on a clammy, wet, damp, heavy day. And we know enough about Rafa to know that's about the only uh, vulnerability that he's ever shown here are those kind of days. So we go back, David, to the final that, uh, that Rafa and Novak played here years ago. And you can help me because I can't even remember which year they all run together. But it was the wet, clammy, rainy final. Yeah. And Rafa, Rafa was ahead and Novak turned the match. It was held over, wasn't and, it? As a, uh, and, and, and Nadal wanted and to get off the court. Rafa stopped the match. The French Open did not uh, – Roland Garros did not stop the match. The tournament referee did not stop the match. Rafa Nadal stopped the match. And his power was such that he could do so. Uh and because Novak had turned the tide and was spinning things in his way. And it was a match that had they continued to play in that wet conditions. And it was miserable. There's no argument. But I'm an American baseball announcer. And the rule of thumb in baseball in America is, which is an outdoor sport, if you play in the rain, then it needs to be a monsoon to stop. And I've always thought the same way about playing on clay here because there's obviously no other surface in which they can play during rain, but they do in clay. And that day was one of those days to me. They played two hours in this. Why would you stop now? Well, they stopped because Rafa felt the, the momentum flipping to Novak and they came back on Monday and Rafa was – it was a better day and Rafa just crushed him and as Rafa would be wont to do. So if it's a wet, damp – cooler, heavier day at favors Novak. It's not going to be the type of day that Rafa would like, but uh, I, you know, I'm of the mindset, David, I think I've heard you say that I'm of the mindset that as long as Rafa is walking and breathing, he is the favorite here. I will never, as much as Novak has, has pushed him here. One of the, he's only, Rafa's only played two five set matches in his life here. It's absurd today when you think 101, today was his 101st match here. He's only played two five sets. 
in 101 matches. And this was his 13th semifinal and his 11th win in straight sets in the semifinals when you're playing another very good player. I mean, that's how insane this guy is. And until there's a, a viable crack in that, in that facade, I'm never going to, I'm never going to go against it. Wow. And actually, I mean, you've seen a lot of sports. You don't just do tennis. And as you said, you've, you've do the ball sports, you've done Olympic sports. Um, what do you make of what you're witnessing as a, as a commentator with these two and with Serena Williams and with Roger Federer? Where does it stand for you in terms of sporting eras? Well, it's the greatest dynasty, David, I've ever seen in my life. In, in the threesome on the men's side and Serena on the women's side. The, and I'll tell you something that I know is going to sound crazy, but I, I've said it quite openly to my tennis channel team and colleagues during the two weeks here in Paris this year is Rapp has played 101 matches here. I have probably called between 60 and 70 of them. It's just, this is the major championship that I have had the most involvement with. And I don't enjoy it anymore because Rafa's too good. It's not his fault. He's just too good and nothing. And so, as we said, these are semifinals in a major, and he's won 11 out of 13 in straight sets. It's, that's absurd to even think about that. Um, so Rafa here has been very challenging. Um, Novak is the one person that's been able to push him. He pushed him to five sets in a semi in 13. He pushed him in, a, in that one rain-delayed final. And then the only time... Why? Well, actually, I shouldn't say it. Twice in my life, I have seen Rafa Nadal, who I believe is the greatest body language athlete I have ever seen in my life in any sport. I've told in my other walks of life in America, I've told coaches in other sports, they should show their players tapes of Rafa Nadal. He is the greatest body language athlete I have ever seen. I've seen that body language break twice. Once was a, uh, two or three years ago, Roger Federer just crushed him at Indian Wells in the hard courts in the spring. The other time was Novak beating him in the quarterfinals at Roland Garros in 2015, where you literally saw Rafa go to the chair and changeover and slump shouldered. We have never seen that. Uh, and that was how brilliant Novak was. And that was the year that stunningly Novak then turned around and lost to Vavrinka in the final after just beating down Rafa. Unlike, you know, even the Soderling match was not that way. Novak, beat Rafa into the clay that day. And we never had seen it before and probably will never see it again. Can Novak do it that day or on Sunday? You know, that's a big ask, but this year, I mean, look, David, you've seen it. This, this era in tennis is crazy. And it, quite honestly, it's what I enjoyed about the U S open on the men's side was to see team and Zverev and Carino Busta, finally get their chance to make a push. And then on the women's side to see someone like Brady, who, you know, that's what we thought was going to happen. This is going to be an opening for somebody. And Jen Brady took it at the U S open. And now here at the French, it's been bizarre. And as it often is here in Paris, you have a whole lot of people you've never heard of before that make a run to the final weekend. To me, that's great. And as wonderful as those three men and Serena has been, tennis needs blood. It needs, every sport needs new blood. Everything needs a cycle that turns over. And I felt very good about the tennis we've seen both in New York and Paris from that front. And as a final thought, Ted, if, if Nadal 
at the French now has has become a little tough to watch just because he's so good and because he's been so dominant. Of all the the matchups rivalries that you've commentated on in tennis over the years, what what is your favorite? In tennis, wow. Um, you know, I, I started, uh, David, when Chris Everett and Martina were both near the end. So I really didn't see it. Everyone references that rivalry, and it's obvious. I didn't really participate in that. I didn't really participate in the McEnroe-Connors rivalry, although that was the first match I ever commentated on was McEnroe against Connors in a final of a tour event in San Francisco. And Mary was my partner. And at the end, we were both in our 20s. We were, you know, young dummies who didn't know what we were doing. And at the end, I remember saying, that was pretty fun. And Mary goes, they're not all like that guy. Don't get too used to it. So <laughs> this typical Mary was very wise, wiser than her years. Um, but, I mean, really, the, the Rafa Roger rivalry is the best that I've seen in tennis. That's just Rafa Roger. You know, and obviously I'm biased as you were such a significant part of the Strokes of Genius film, you know, to have the ability to call that match. That is the single greatest sporting event that I have ever commentated on in my career in any sport, David, was that match. And it, you, you, I'm speaking to you, you know what I'm talking about, but all of the dynamics involved there, it was, you know, which guy Rafa had already established himself as the king of the hill in Paris. Roger was the king of the hill at Wimbledon. Who was going to knock the other guy off his hill first? And Roger had had a couple of swings at Rafa in Paris by that point and hadn't done it. Rafa had a swing in Roger in 06 and Wimbledon didn't do it. 07 at Wimbledon came close, didn't do it. Now in 08, he finally does it. And of course, with the open air, the rain delays, the looming nightfall, none of that can happen again. Um, you know, I, I feel treasured. I'm sure you do because you were there to be part of an event that will never happen again. Uh, and I will, I mean, having done, I've called the Super Bowl in America and been part of World Series and baseball and some other fabulous things, but that's the greatest sporting event I have ever commentated on was the 2008 Wimbledon final. And I feel so privileged to have been a part of that. So to your question, that's the best. Roger and Rafa, even though the rivalry has been very, one-sided to Rafa. It's a matchup problem that we all understand. Those who understand sport know that it's a matchup that is just better for Rafa. Just as the Novak-Rafa matchup has a lot of preference and a lot of benefit to Novak, <laughs> this one, Roger just is, unless it's playing at the O2 on the speedy indoor courts that you've seen in the year end where Roger has the better win and where he did it in the Wells when it was a faster outdoor court and that played right into Roger's hand and he just crushed Rafa. You know, those are the places Rogers had the advantage, but everywhere else it really does play to Rafa. And that just as a final point, that that makes you realize just how significant Sunday is statistically, given that Djokovic is on 17, can get to 18 and close to one on Nadal. If Nadal wins, he goes level with Federer on 20. I mean, this it's extraordinary really the way it's just working out. And, and David, you think about, so think about the U.S. Open final how many years ago when Roger has match point and Novak just swings out and hits that smoking forehand return and spins the match and ends up winning that U.S. Open. And then last summer, 2019 summer at Wimbledon, where I would be of the mindset that Roger was the better player for the entire match. 
but Novak was the better player in three tie breaks. And that was the difference. Those two majors that Roger, by all measures, could have won and in some minds should have won, Novak won those. Look where that has. If you spin those numbers around and suddenly it's 22, 19, and Novak's at 15, now suddenly Novak's path to overtaking both would be tougher. So these crazy thin margins. Mm. Finally, Ted, it's, uh, it's, it's just lovely to have you with us on the Tennis Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. David, you and your colleagues, Catherine and Matt, do fabulous work. And what I wish I can do is that next summer in London, I can come and share pints of Guinness with you because I am an American <laughs> that has a Guinness tap. I have a Guinness tap in my house. Oh, that, you're a legend. <laughs> so I would challenge I would challenge you there must be a remote tennis podcast done from the San Francisco Bay Area with my Guinness tap active oh well, I mean do you know we, we were invited to Mary Carrillo's cellar in New York the other, yesterday now we've been invited to Ted Robinson's Guinness tap fantastic <laughs> you're on brilliant thanks so much thanks David Okay, well, if any, um, you know, virologists or scientists are listening, pull your finger out and sort out a vaccine for COVID-19 because uh, Matt, David and I need to have our road trip from Mary Carrillo's basement to Ted Robinson's Guinness Tap in San Francisco and it needs to happen. Nobody else with me? I'll, I mean, I'll go I, on my own if I need I, to. I couldn't be more with you. <laughs> if um, anyone's got, you know, somewhere we could break the journey, maybe in the middle, that would be yeah, great. <laughs> absolutely. Is that a Route 66 job from New York to, to cross country? Don't really know my US geography. That's probably about five solid days of Bruce Springsteen top down, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say. We could, we could get through the whole back catalogue several yeah. times, I reckon. Where yeah. Bruce live? Maybe we could stop by his place. New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah. While we're in New yeah, York. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure the invite is is there, <laughs> David. I mean, the, we've got invites coming out of our ears. Um, lo- so much interesting stuff there um, from Ted. Um, I mean, just the perspective of having covered those two Grand Slams on site is is fascinating to me. Just in terms of what he had to say about. The men's final, Djokovic against Nadal, their fifty-sixth meeting. He he's favouring Nadal. Mm. Does that does that make you waver, David? Oh, absolutely. Everything everything makes me waver <laughs> with regards to this rivalry. Every person I speak to, every statistic I hear, every argument made, because they're all so relevant. You can you can reel them all off. The the way Djokovic has won fourteen out of the last eighteen matches between the two, the fact that he seems to have the kryptonite kryptonite to beat Nadal, the fact that he's beaten Nadal at the French Open once before. But what about Nadal's won twelve? The blooming titles. He's never lost in a final. He he's beaten Djokovic several times in the final at Roland Garros. He knows how to do it. They're both in great form. Arguably, Djokovic looks like he might be in even better form. You take your pick. Take your pick okay. of the reason take, take why. Take your pick, then, David. <laughs> well, I'm going Djokovic. 
I'm going Djokovic so you haven't to, wavered. To, to win. Okay. No, look, I have wavered, but I've come back around again. I mean, I'm, <laughs> and and who's listening to me anyway? Given my record, of the not your mum anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the beauty of it is the, is the conversation and is the anticipation because it is one of the great rivalries. I mean, I, I have to say, sometimes I can zone out of some of their matches just because of the sheer length of them in terms of the, the amount of time they take between points and the length of the rallies. They make for fascinating commentary uh, challenges f for someone like me on the radio, and I'll be doing this match tomorrow on BBC Radio, in describing points. Nobody other than those two, a bit of Andy Murray certainly, but those two more than anybody have the ability to get back in a point when you think it is over. And as a radio commentator, I'm building up to a crescendo of when I anticipate a point to be over and I suddenly find out that I've got to go <laughs> all the way back down from, from up there and come back down to the start of the rally again because they've got back on the baseline and they're just in neutral gear. Um, but still... You know, I'm nitpicking. It's it's these are two of the three greatest male tennis players ever, and the statistical difference between the three of them now is so delicious that it is hard to believe that somebody hasn't fixed it. I mean, obviously they haven't. But, you know, it's it's hard to believe it's real. Matt, any wavering? Lots. Um, I picked Nadal at the start of the tournament because this is the French Open and Nadal wins the French Open. So I think I'm going to stick with Nadal. I'm very, very invested in the Grand Slam race. I feel like my whole tennis watching life has been the Grand Slam race, certainly on the men's mm. side. So any chance that we get to see two of those protagonists face off with so much history on the line, I'm incredibly excited for. Um I was thinking back to the Roland Garros Relived show that we did on Novak Djokovic winning the French Open and those words that Marion Vider said to you, Catherine, about how Nadal had made Djokovic fall out of love with the clay because of just how many beatings he took at the hands of Nadal and, you know, just just goes to show how linked they are and how much their two destinies in tennis have been have been affected by the other player. Um, I think if Nadal gets this one, you could make a case it would be his greatest Roland Garros victory in terms of the lack of form he had coming in, the different conditions, the fact that he will have to beat his biggest rival on this surface in the final. I just I just cannot wait. I, I, I share your concerns sometimes about the matchup and the, and the length of time between points. Um, but... I don't know. I'm, I'm going to slightly disagree with Ted when he says he feels Nadal fatigue. I have I have felt that in the past, and I perfectly respect that feeling. I think dominance can sometimes bring that out, and it can it can be dull. But there's something over the last couple of years I've just really tried to not take Nadal for granted at the French Open, especially last year when he was really struggling with his form coming in and. He ended up winning it, and you you just saw how deep he he does have to dig to win this title. It's it's not a case of him just showing up and winning. And I think I've got that perspective again on him this year. This is a this is a real struggle for him this year, and I I, I wouldn't be surprised if Djokovic wins. But I'm just just gonna think Nadal might have 
might have history and just the magic of the place behind him and kind of pull it out. Mm. Two o'clock UK time on Sunday. Do listen to David's commentary on Five Live because, I mean, it's great at the best of times, but I've heard you do Nadal Djokovic matches before many times, David, and I think it's your absolute thing. That challenge brings out the best. So do listen. Do listen to David if you oh, can. Two o'clock tomorrow sure for that, that final. Um, <laughs> Come on, Catherine. We're not getting away without a prediction from you, surely. I'm with you, Matt. I picked Nadal at the start. I'm not uh, as much as there's a big part of my head that says Djokovic is playing the best tennis. I'm not going to not pick Nadal at the French Open. And if he does it, he draws level with Roger Federer. Mm. Yeah. It, it's it's massive on twenty and 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 it's sorry just worth saying that if Djokovic does it if he wins he'll have won all the slams at least twice, twice. which is something no and man all, and all the Masters at least twice yeah which is would be mm. utterly crazy I mean Federer and Nadal are missing a few for their first lap round all mm. of them he would have two laps round so it's it's very very big for both players obviously. Just to round up a few other results for you from day 14 of the French Open, Kevin Kravitz and Andres Mies have defended their men's doubles title at the French Open. They were unseeded at last year's tournament. It was kind of out of nowhere. So for them to have defended it against Bruno Suarez and Mate Pavic in the final 6-3-7-5, very impressive. Alfie Hewitt, um, he has won his second French Open singles title. He has beaten Joaquim Gerard uh, in a really um, thrilling three-set final, 6-4, 4-6, 6-3, the men's wheelchair singles final. Dylan Alcott has beaten Andy Lapthorne in the quad wheelchair men's singles fi- uh, final. And that is Dylan Alcott's second uh, French Open singles title. Uh, and we've also had a few other results today. We've had Dida de Groot and Anik Van Koot beating Yui Kamiji and Jordan Wiley, 7-6, uh, and then 10-8 in the Champions tiebreak, which sounds like a real thriller. So uh, de Groot and Van Koot, they've won how many? Uh, they've, they're the three-time uh, French Open champions now. They've won three years consecutively, yeah. which is... Um, Pretty incredible stuff. And we've had Dominic Steven Stricker winning the All-Swiss Boys Singles Final, 6-2-6-4. So maybe that's a name for the future. He's also won the Boys Doubles Final alongside F. Cobolli, uh, another young Italian. So he's done done the junior doubles, so mark his card for the future. Dominic Steven Stricker and Elsa Giacomo, uh, has won the girls' singles title for France four six six four six two. She was the third seed, so nice for France to have a winner. Uh, so that is your day fourteen of the twenty twenty French Open. One more of these things to go, uh, and it's going to be epic. It's going to be absolutely epic. We can't wait for tomorrow. We can't wait to do one more podcast. Matt, David, and Ted Robinson, and lovely Cam. Thank you very much indeed we'll see you tomorrow planning for your next trip 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 